Kate. And I'm Heather. And we're making life. This week's episode is Lynn Feingold, who serves as the president of the Folk Song Society of Greater Boston, manages and performs with the music hall singers, the Old Howard Troupe, and is a singer of ballads and body songs, many of which she learned during her 27-year tenure as a tavern wench at Blanchard's Tavern in Avon, MA. Um, Lynn, let's start at the beginning, shall we? Why don't you tell us about being a tavern at the Tavern Wench? Because I've heard some stories and I know you've got more. What was it like to sing for that crowd? Um, well, uh, thanks for having me today. As you might imagine, it was fun and funny to sing for people who were at a tavern and um, out for a little bit of an adventure in a historic tavern. We were set up to be kind of portraying the year 1780. So Blanchard's Tavern was a colonial period tavern. And I tried to stick mostly to songs that were of that period, but some of my songs leaked over into the 1800s um, and some were even modern songs that um, just sounded traditional. I can tell you I learned a lot in the 27 years that I was there. I performed once a month and I think I missed one month because I was having a baby. And I think I missed one other month because I was sick. But other than that, I was there every month and also doing special events uh, with the tavern. But being in front of an audience like that, a live audience, I learned to um, think on my feet and to manage the audience. Like if I wanted them to sit still for a five minute ballad, if I balanced it against the promise of um, singing some body or songs at the end of the night, I started to really enjoy putting together the set lists and I would um, break up my songs into categories uh, on my set list so that I could just quickly find a drinking song or a sad ballad or a love song or a song about an adventure. And, but here was my biggest learning from my 27 years was that I started with a terrific case of stage fright. And um, the first time I sang in front of that live audience, I was so terrified that it was all I could do to get the sound to come out of me. I was just uh, feeling seized at the throat. But oh, wow. um, that stage fright um, lasted in kind of a milder form after that first night for a full year. <laughs> so for 12 performances, I was more or less terrorized and just feeling like, am I doing the right thing? Do I belong here? In the end, I learned that I could be fearless. And that also leaked into my private life. So uh, you could say that everything I learned about life, I learned by being a tavern wench. And that might be true, <laughs> you know? And I think it was about three years in that I did my first private gig outside of the tavern. And that was a revelation to me that I was now valued as a solo performer and I could get gigs outside the tavern. And then I started getting calls from, oh my goodness, historical societies and libraries and museums. Um, I had business cards printed up and gave them away at every gig. And of course, in those days, I didn't have a computer at home. It was, um, so it was mostly just getting calls from dropping my business card places. And uh, all of these groups had a lot of overlap. So if I sang at a historical society dinner, um, someone in the crowd would be on the library board or in a women's church group, and they would invite me to come and, you know, they'd ask what my rate was and I would tell them. And, 
And then, you know, I'd get another call and we'd kind of nail down the details and, and that was it. And then I started, I did go out and sing a lot of open mics that first year. I would go to open mics at folk clubs and just sit, you know, be there for the entire night, watch other performers, study them and how they, you know, worked with the audience. And then I would have my turn up at the microphone and it became less terrifying. And now it's not terrifying at all. It's just the way it is. Right. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Did you always know that you wanted to be a professional performer or how did you start um, singing at the tavern? Is this what you always wanted to do or did it just happen? No. So this is a funny story, right? Um, My mother used to say that I just started singing when I was about three years old and Mm -hmm. I would just sing everything. And, uh, you know, I would, I would hear a song and I would be able to sing it back. And I remember being in kindergarten and coming home and singing songs that I was learning in kindergarten to my family. So I was the youngest in the family. And I think that um, I learned early on in my family that one way that I could get attention was by being entertaining. And I could sing a song and, you know, I could carry a tune. And I recognized um, I didn't read music. I never learned to read music or play an instrument. However, it was a way that it was in the 1960s when I was growing up that, you know, family members would get together and, and sing, or they would, we'd be in the car and we would sing, or we'd be rowing a boat and we'd be singing or, you know, going for a hike and singing. So it was, um, it was just something that we did all the time. A lot of fun. Okay. So it becoming something you did professionally, just kind of, came out of that the fact that you were singing all the time anyway so let me tell you um how i wound up being a tavern wench and wound up being at the tavern i was brought there by my parents when i was still in high school and it was a lot of fun and i just loved it because these were the first people that i knew outside of my family who apparently enjoyed singing and i was excited to meet people like this, you know, that, that there was a place to go where I could participate in a sing-along and, you know, sing along with a Irish drinking song or something like that with a great deal of gusto and, and, and just have fun. And uh, the tavern was such a fun and, and funny place um, in a lot of ways. It was a little bit like Colonial Williamsburg, right? Um, people in costume, um, the performer was always in costume. And I just found this tremendously interesting and I loved all the songs that they were singing and I wanted to know more. So when I got married, um, you know, years later, I graduated uh, college and got married and I started volunteering at the tavern. Mm -hmm. And I remember the very first night I reached down below the bar to get um, a beer for someone and someone who was tapping a beer over me from the tap spilled some beer in my hair and it ran down my back. And I thought, oh, I don't even like beer. And I was like, this is so gross. But um, again, I thought, well, but I know I want to do this. So I'm going to stick around. And um, just because it was a little uncomfortable the first night doesn't mean it's always going to be uncomfortable. Uh, So let me go back again and just um, try again. And I was singing there. I was behind the the bar and I was pouring drinks one night and one of my favorite performers was on stage so I was singing along and someone standing next to me I didn't know this was taking a video of um, the performer on stage 
but because I was singing right next to the recording device, just my voice came through. So um, that video got passed around <laughs> by the people at the tavern. And then I was approached by one of the performers, uh, Janet, who wanted to know, would I like to sing at the tavern? And could I come and meet her at the tavern and, and sing some of my songs to her? I said, I don't know that many songs to sing at the tavern. And she said, well, just come anyway. And she was the one really who pointed to me and said, oh, I think you've got it. I think you could do this. And um, I didn't know. I, I didn't know. So I went and I sang um, about 15 songs for her that were just songs that I knew. And some of them were, you know, I, th I thought these were kind of like songs I would hear if I went to the tavern. And, um, and she said, yeah, I think you've got the gig. You know, um, do you have a long skirt? And I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> so she said, yeah, just put on a white shirt and a long skirt and come to the tavern um, next Friday night and we'll try you out. And I was, I was just, what? Oh, um, okay. And it was, wow. a, it was a paid gig and I was astounded. And like I said, it was terrifying. <laughs> it was so frightening that I was glad I had a long skirt on because, you know, you, you hear people uh, get uh, so scared that their knees knock together. My no. knees were like castanets that night. I was just, I was literally, my knees were crashing together under my skirt. But the tavern eventually closed. The same thing was happening everywhere with um, small museums and other organizations, you know, historical societies and things like that. Also, I was getting busier at my real job and it was getting harder to find gigs and to fit them in uh, because I had a daughter. And um, between working full time and having a daughter and, and having some outside interests, um, it was it was just like, well, okay, I'm gonna you know hang up doing gigs right now because I've just got to you know get my job done and and work and raise my daughter. So I took a couple of years there where I was just off and working, and you know I was still singing myself in the house and doing an occasional appearance at an open mic for instance but um yeah so that, that that's uh that's that part of my story it was it was just uh all of a sudden i think that the what happened with the tavern and i think what happened with the small museums and organizations and historical societies and things where i ordinarily would have had a gig they were aging out a lot of mm -hmm. the volunteers were getting older there wasn't um, anyone young who wanted to come in and you know pick up the slack and and uh, and participate and and so it just became you know and I think that that was something that happened because so much of our world was changing the technology was you know was coming forward like the iPhone and or even just the flip phone I guess in those days but you know now you had a cell phone you could contact people more easily. You could never be out of contact. There was a lot of in-home entertainment that you could get then. There were VCRs mm -hmm. and you could listen to CDs and records and you didn't have to go out for the evening. You could just be at home. And I think that that's something that happened that really made some of those smaller organizations and things go away. And that's just gotten to be more so the case in the decades since, right? Mm -hmm. It's, yeah, it's sad that what you were saying about the venues closing and that's so familiar. Someone was just talking about that with an organization that exists right now that just there's no 
young people that want to take over. So will it continue? Who knows? It's, it's hard. And I mean, sometimes some of these things have to die before they get resurrected by someone who cares. And mm -hmm. that's, that's sad, but it's true. That's just what can happen sometimes. But to me, the things that I'm involved in, I'm involved in them because I think that they're important and should go forward. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of pick up the banner along the way as I see it maybe failing and grab it and go and promote a lot. I promote a lot of what I do with other people and, you know, show them that what I'm doing has real value, even though it might not cost anything to participate or even though you might not see the direct benefit now of something, uh, especially some of the more creative endeavors. 10 years from now, 20 years from now, it's going to be important what I'm doing right now. And I really That's believe that. <laughs> yeah, me too. I'm thinking a lot about all of the trad music that we sing together and all of the folk music spaces that we share and how often this conversation comes up there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But also you put me in mind of all, of all of your grant writing experience. You've done quite a bit of that for various organizations. Do you have any pointers for those of us who are new to grant writing? And uh, can we just can we just complain for two minutes about how annoying the budget section is? Because maybe oh that's just me, but oh I hate it. <laughs> I have to say, if I could get someone else to do the budget section, I would write more grants. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's just a fact of life. And I'll tell you what it's like. As I've uh, developed a small business myself over the past couple of months, what I've been learning is how important it is to pitch your marketing materials to hit your client. Who's the customer that you want to attract, right? Mm -hmm. So when you write a grant, what you need to do is think of, okay, why am I putting this event on? Who do I want to attract? Who is my audience? And is that the audience that the granting organization wants to develop? So if I've got a great idea, you know, sometimes I will think, oh, I've got a great idea. And then I think it through. And then I think, but how would I sell this? Who would I sell this to? And does it, you know, does it really matter? And then sometimes something like that gets toned down and becomes a private event I have in my backyard, like mm -hmm. ballads around the fire pit. Ballads around the fire pit is just a gathering of friends who all know ballads or like to listen to ballads. And they sit around the fire pit um, we gather at about dusk, um, it gets darker and darker, and then we just sing until we feel as though we're being too noisy for the neighborhood and then people go home. But what's <laughs> nice about that is it's a nice, small, intimate event. But that first started in my head as, oh, here's an event that I could do for the Folk Song Society of Greater Boston. And it could be this big event, but then that intimacy is gone once you have 50 people around a fire pit. Yeah, mm. totally. So you understand what I'm saying. So it's just, you know, grants are like that. You have to think about what you have in mind. Is it really viable? Is it really something that's going to work? And the whole process from start to finish is a creative process. And that's what I like about writing grants is that if you can write a grant that you know hits all the right, you know, the arrow is hitting the center of the target every time with every aspect of it whether it's the audience that you're going to grow, what you are expecting is going to come out of this grant, 
And I think it's also very important with grants to not go it alone and to partner with someone. So Do you mean get, in terms of writing the grant or in terms of the project itself? No, I mean in terms of the project itself. So when you're thinking about a project, don't just think, oh, I would like to go do this thing and get paid for it. And I'm going to write a grant for that. What you should do is say, who could I invite to join me in this mission? And what would be the mutual benefit for us? So in my case, the old Howard troupe was going to be performing. Um, and we were looking for performances. And I said, I'll write a grant so that you can come to my town, to Randolph, and we will partner with the library. And that's, I think, what won us the grant. We were granted the entire amount because I had the foresight to contact the library and say, so I live in town. I have this music hall troupe I'd like to put on a performance. We would like to do it in a Saturday afternoon. And we're going to target our marketing, especially toward um, the retired individuals living in town. So because we had this goal of attracting an older audience that sometimes doesn't get out for events because they're held in the evening and they don't want to drive at night, this was how we pitched it. And I'll tell you, when I walked down the aisle uh, with the troupe to go to the stage and do the performance, I was just looking around at the sea of gray and white hair. And I thought, yes, we did it. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> and they had a wonderful time. Had you already known uh, that the retired community was being underserved? Like, how did you put those pieces together? Um, really just by being uh, in my community and being active in my community and knowing that there's a very active um, senior population in my community, but they live in different parts of the community and aren't necessarily coming together as one group of people to do events like this. So, um, you know, it was, we were not exclusive. We didn't say we're only letting in people who are over the age of 65, but we did um, target them in terms of making sure that we went to the Randolph Intergenerational Community Center and dropped off flyers there in the senior room where they go and hang out and play games. And, you know, so some of them go to the community center. Uh, we also did some outreach through the Council on Aging and got them to put it in their newsletter because that goes out, you know, and is picked up around town for free by a lot of um, the retired folks. And then it was just some just downright networking with people that I know who are in that population that I know they're connected with a lot of people. So it was that outreach, you know, to individuals in the town and asking them to help spread the word. And we had a Facebook event. We were coming at them from a lot of different angles, but, but um, I was really glad to see that it turned out at, like it did with so many older folks there. It was great. Yeah, that was great. That's awesome that it worked out. Um, so as you're telling us a little bit about that gig with the old Howard Troop, I'm sure there are people who are wondering, what is the old Howard Troop? What do you sing and how did you guys come together? Oh my goodness. So this goes back to um, after the tavern closed, I started to look around for opportunities to sing, uh, you know, in this area, greater Boston, right? I, I would go almost anywhere to sing, but I wanted just to find someplace local. And um, I was invited to a backyard party one day at um, a local potter's house. 
And uh, it was expected there was going to be some singing because she knows some singers. And that's where I first met some people from the Folk Song Society of Greater Boston. And then from there, um, I heard about a pub sing from them at an Irish pub in Waltham. I really miss the Skellig pub. I just want to say shout out to the Skellig. And I started to go, you know, every month. And um, my repertoire was so different from the standard pub song repertoire. I didn't have a lot of sing-along songs. I had mostly what I called presentation songs. I'm going to sing it for you. And there might be a little chorus, but it's a really little chorus. And that was part of the way in which being a solo a cappella performer, I could you know, control what was going on in the audience. I could make sure they're not gonna drown me out and take over the song, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so I connected with people from the Greater Boston Traditional Song Group there. And after about knowing them for maybe two or three years and going to the pub sings and really getting to know them through their other work doing um, Robert Burns, you know, commemorative suppers every year. The Burns supper is a big thing. Super and I, fun. And I, yes, it is super fun, isn't it? And I started going to those and, you know, I know a few Scottish songs, so I kind of fit in in that way. But then one night we were just kind of talking about the fact that the New England Folk Festival Association was going to have their annual folk festival. And um, it had just opened up for performers to put in applications to perform. And I was sitting there at the pub sing, as one does, and uh, someone just had done a brilliant, um, and I, I don't even know who it was, but someone had just done a brilliant music hall song. And I thought, oh my gosh, that was just great. You know what? I know an English music hall song and so do you and so do you and so do you. I, I said, we should put together a little group and put on a music hall you know, workshop or something at NEFA, the New England Folk Festival Association. And, um, and they said, yeah, yeah, that's great. I said, okay, well, are you in, you in, you in? So I had about six of them that said, sure, they would be willing to go and do one or two songs. Great. Okay, I had my team together now. And uh, just like writing a grant, I wrote a proposal and said, we have this group of very experienced singers. All of us have a background in being on stage and doing traditional songs. And we'd like to put on a music hall, you know, English music hall performance or workshop or something and, and sing some of these songs. And that's like all we had. So then, much to my surprise, we get the answer back uh, about two months later. Okay, you're on. And it was like, oh my gosh, now we're on. Now we need to deliver. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's what the guy had really thought we were going to get in. So I, okay, well, quickly we added what we needed to to our repertoire so that we could go and do the performance. And I think it was about, I mean, it was really close, maybe two weeks before the performance. Oh, wow. Um, I went to one of the final rehearsals um, and much to my surprise, Lynn Noel, uh, I think you've had on the podcast here before, mm-hmm. said, well, I've got my costume ready. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute, we're doing costumes? <laughs> I, I really didn't know we were doing costumes. I guess I just thought we were going to go and, you know, do like a workshop and, and be in street clothes and talk about music hall and sing. Um, but no, it was apparently the idea was it was going to be a full blown performance. And I was like, oh, my gosh. OK, well, I've got to be ready now. So then I hunted up something that I thought would work. And I grabbed a, you know, a big old hat and I was ready and we were all ready. And uh, we went to NEFA that first time 
went up on stage. We did not have a piano player. It was just us singing as you would in a pub without any um, music behind us, all acapella. But one after the other, the chairman would introduce us. We would get up, we would do our song. And we were all so excited and nervous in our costumes on stage together performing. It was thrilling. It was so much fun. But we ran through our program very quickly. You're, you're 50 minutes at NEFA. It's called NEFA time. So we have 50 minutes to perform. I think we were done in about 40 minutes. And people were, you know, cheering. And, and we had a nice little audience together who were curious about what we were going to be putting on. And a lot of them know us individually as performers. And um, it was very funny because we all marched off the stage and people were shouting for an encore. And we had no idea that was going to happen. So we were not huh? ready with an encore. But we were just so, I think, excited and rattled by the fact that it had, we had pulled it off, right? That yeah. we marched off the stage and I, I shouted to the audience, come back next year, we'll know more songs. And <laughs> that kind of just set the tone that we were going to be back. We went out in the hallway and I remember all of them were like lit with adrenaline and excitement. And when are we doing this again? When are we going to do this again? Was the big question. And I said, well, okay, okay, okay. That was great. That was great. But let's talk about when we're going to do this again. So that was in April and it was six years ago. And then what happened after that was my sister booked us in Rockland for her annual coffee house for the uh, Rockland Emergency Food Pantry. So we did our second performance. And that was the first time that we had a piano player. We had Jean Monroe uh, introduced to us by Jeff Keller, who is also in our uh, old Howard troupe. He saw her at NEFA and said, hey, do you do music hall? I uh, want to be in a music hall show sometime. And she said, sure. And that was it. <laughs> That's all we had okay. to go on. But what was interesting so, was that um, these pub singers who were accustomed to singing on their own a cappella with no accompaniment had to uh, learn to adapt and sing with the piano. A little give and take there, but it was something that we've worked out over the years. And now I think that, you know, five years later or six years later, I can say, yeah, we really, we work together very well as a team and we're always on the lookout for uh, new songs. Great story. I've never known the beginning of the old Howard troupe. Oh no, it's uh, it's been, it's been a great uh, it's been a great trip. It really has been. It's been a lot of fun. So you mentioned the chairman in that story. Who I um in case anybody doesn't know, the chairman is a character sort of in the troupe, and you all have personas, and yours is Ula Flugelsang. Is Ula based on a real person, an actual musical performer, or did you make her up? I made up Ula Flugelsang. I just came up with a ridiculous name. Um, and <laughs> the key here is to know that in the heyday of English Music Hall, female music hall stars didn't have to be um, beautiful or charming. Um, it helped if they were beautiful or charming, but they didn't have to be. Um, but they did have to have a big voice. They had to be willing to wear sometimes outrageous costumes and they had to be not intimidated by the audience. So knowing what I know about those music hall stars, she's based partly, I think, on my tavern wench persona, right? Mm -hmm. um, kind of, uh, you know, kind of uh, out there and gutsy and a little bit body and um, on, right? Mm -hmm. But she's also based on so many of the female music hall stars 
I guess the one that comes to mind for me the most is Marie Lloyd. Um, she was, I would say, most the choice that I had in mind when I was looking for a kind of a saucy character. She was known for singing somewhat questionable um, lyrics. You know, they were body. She was always defending the right for a woman to sing a body song, uh, sometimes defending the right in court. <laughs> she was taken to court oh, wow. by, you know, these moral uh, societies in London. But she was outspoken and she was um, sassy and she could uh, really bring a song across. Now, I just did a PowerPoint for the Neffa Festival and it was about the history of Music Hall. And one of the people I talked about was uh, Marie Lloyd. She was instrumental in creating a union of uh, Music Hall performers. There was a, a big thing that happened in Music Hall history. It was known as the Music Hall War. And it was about 1909, I think, 1908, 1909. The people who owned Music Halls thought it was a great idea to add more performances to the Music Hall Act lineup, but not pay the performers anything more for these extra performances. And they it was as though they owned them and they just wanted them to do, yeah, I want you to do two matinees now. And that those extra performances were being added in the middle of your day. So now you had to be at the music hall in the middle of the day and then hang out until the evening and then do your, you know, your regular e evening performances, but you'd really only be paid the same amount. That didn't seem very fair. So she actually led the way. And within a few, she was so well-known. She was a star, very much a star, um, that she was able to gather 4,000 performers together and create a union. And um, yeah, I, it's just, it's a great story. If and nobody has ever, um, you know, looked up uh, Music Hall, uh, look up Music Hall War. And, uh, wow. you know, Marie Lloyd was... She was at the top of her game and she was being paid a lot of money to go out and sing at music halls. But there were so many music halls still in London, you know, hundreds of music halls in London that were small and that were just little holes in the wall that were paying the performers next to nothing. What a fantastic person to base your persona off of. Right. Wow. Because she's just amazing. She's amazing. She was known as the queen of the music hall. So what I need to know now is, are there awesome music hall union songs? Like, do those exist? Did she help make some of them happen in that time period? I feel like there should be. I feel like there must have been. Um, and I know that she would be on the picket line and she would go actually and perform on the picket line so that people, oh. so they would attract a crowd who would <sighs> then... The, you know, this crowd that were coming to see Murray Lloyd singing out in front of the music hall um, and she would be surrounded by her fellow performers and then they would have a crowd that they could talk to about what was going on. And everyone loved music hall. I mean, so something to think about when you think about music hall songs and that period in history, I think, is that people's lives were really so hard. It was unbelievably hard to be um, an average working Joe or Jane, I guess, in, um, in working class London in the late 1800s. So mm. a lot of, there was a lot of uh, illness. There were no treatments for some of these illnesses. I mean, you could, 
literally get an infected tooth and die of it. I mean, you know, you could get a bad cold and be gone within a few days. People were working. There were no uh, real restrictions for how long people could work, how many days off they got, all that stuff. So people worked themselves to death. The music hall was where they went to be relieved of some of that burden, just to be able to laugh. And so the music hall songs, a lot of them relate to political things that were going on. They poke fun at um, high fashion because there were all these people at the, in the upper echelon who were obsessed with the latest gown from Paris mm. and the people who could barely afford to put clothes on their back would, you know, go to the music hall and, you know, and see some of these songs that were making fun of these uh, rich people for how ridiculous that was and some of the ridiculous fashions that they wore. So that makes me think about um, where I saw old Howard Troop, I think first or maybe second, was at steampunk festivals where it's set in the late 1800s and Somehow, yes, there everyone is a lord or a lady of something and wears very fancy clothing. Almost no one is like an actual coal miner type. (laughs) Um, Everyone is very fancy. Somehow, it's an interesting connection to the music hall stuff. Like definitely the the group that shows up there is who is being made fun of at the music hall, I think. Even though it's all very like fantastical and none of it is real. It's like a made up retro futurist fantasy, but still... With pirates. With, oh, with pirates, pirates, yes. Airship pirates, yeah. Airship pirates, yes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, how did the Old Howard Troop start doing steampunk festivals? Well, I think that one of our members went to a steampunk festival and saw, uh, looking around, oh my goodness, a lot of them are dressed in quasi-Victorian clothing. Maybe we could market what we have as a Victorian entertainment. Um, and it really that is that, it's a Victorian period entertainment. And uh, we could market that to the steampunk festival crowd. And uh, we approached the steampunk festival, uh, kind of you know, put in a proposal and said, we will do you know, a real Victorian period entertainment for your crowd. And what was really fun was that because we were in costume and a lot of the crowd was in costume, they had an automatic connection with us and they loved the songs. So we became very popular at the steampunk festivals, um, just as we had at the New England Folk Festival. Um, It was, people saw a connection and and these songs are just, they're so much fun. And they're so, um, some of them are just so silly. Um, The ones that I do sometimes have a little bit of a nudge nudge character to them. And that's a lot of fun, but I mean, the piano player, uh, Jean Monroe is just fantastic. She does such a good job of, you know, creating that world that we are playing in, right? Because we didn't understand, I think, when we were first doing this, how much the piano was going to add to what we were doing. And, oh, God bless Jean. She does such a good job with us um, because she goes out ahead of every performance and does a little you know, intro, and she will just run through a few music, music hall songs, and it sets the tone for where you are. You are in the music hall. And we often, wherever we go, we could be performing in, you know, someone, on someone's back deck, and we say, follow us to the music hall. And that's just, you know, we bring the music hall with us everywhere we go. 
And I used to do that when I went out and sang at historical societies and, you know, in Grange halls. I, I sang in a lot of funny places, church halls. You know, I would say, meet me at the tavern, come to the tavern. And I'm inviting people into my little world, right? Just as the steampunk festival is inviting you into their little world. So we're a little bubble within their bigger world. When I put on my costume and um, I can feel the character and there's an energy shift. I guess this is what little kids feel when they dress up, right? Um, but I can um, feel that I'm, I'm actually, you know, being Ulla Flugelsang. And I'm very comfortable in that performance space. So, that, yeah, yeah, that makes uh, me think, do you perform as Lynn Feingold ever? Or is it always Ulla Flugelsang or the Tavern Wench or some other persona? Well, isn't that funny? Because after 27 years of, you know, performing in costume and, uh, and doing that, and really only having family be the people who had heard me sing anything other than what I sang at the tavern. Um, it was a little nerve wracking at first to go to some of the pub sings and, and some of the other things and sing songs that were not something I would sing at the tavern or were something I would sing at the tavern. And I had to kind of get used to the process of getting into my headspace to perform, even though I didn't have the clothing on. And it was just, then there was, a, I think, a recognition in me that, oh, I've actually just been in here all this time inside this costume and inside <laughs> this, this character's in me and it's okay, I'm good. You know, I can go and do this and I'm more relaxed now about that. It's been a few years now since the tavern closed and, you know, I became president of the Folk Song Society and, you know, I've held a ballad singing contest every year with my sister. I mean, there's a lot of places that I go now and sing and I'm not in any sort of costume, but yeah. This makes me think of my, my acting training and how when I was starting, I mean, I started acting in school as a kid, like a lot of people do. And I started with the thinking that I had to step into a character and put one on. Mm. And like, you know, I would do character sheets and there would be background and there would be, you know, what does your character's bedroom look like? And what were their parents like? And what's their middle name? And blah, 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 blah. Right, and right. All through, all through high school and into college, that's how I approached it. And then I found Shakespeare and Company. And at Shakespeare and Company, their whole approach is there is no character. There is only you in these circumstances. Right. Right. And so I love hearing that you have sort of made that journey yourself. Mm -hmm. too. Heather, do you experience that when you're um, playing Savoy? So I was thinking, I feel like my getting into singing for anyone other than just, you know, myself has been the opposite of what Lynn said. Like I love singing and I always have and I was like on a quest to find where can I sing more that is not church because I do not really want to sing at church anymore but I do want to sing all the time and went from situation to situation trying to find groups of people and eventually did find the wonderful pub sing folks which is how I know you guys and there I mostly uh, would prefer to just sing along because that's what I'm actually there for is just singing in general, not like performing. Um, but there's, there's a lot of pressure to please sing a song and contribute like an equal amount to this whole 
thing we're creating together by everyone singing something. So I got over that and started trying to like lead a song or whatever. And only through that did I then feel at all comfortable to like be the singer in any of these bands I've always mm. been in. Um, so there, since I'm still, I'm still not like a singer who wants to perform singing songs as me. I'm way more comfortable having this character to put on in the band rather than like actually bear my own soul <laughs> by singing <laughs> songs that are about real things. We only sing songs about like, you know, a made up fantasy world. And right. I like it that way. <laughs> well, I, I remember when I, um, I actually thought, you know, something I'd always wanted to do was be on stage and be in a musical. And I'd never had the confidence to do that when I was in high school. And I used to hang around. I literally used to hang around the, um, the theater door when I was in college and I would usher and I would, you know, do things in, uh, you know, behind the scenes. Um, but I would never be on stage and I wanted to be on stage, but I, mm. but I, I don't know, I guess I was waiting for a written invitation. I don't know. But when my daughter was born, I thought, okay, so where am I and what am I doing? And, and, what have I not done yet that I would really like to do? And that was one of the things that came to my mind was I'd like to do something with musical theater and I would like to have that experience. So they were going to um, have uh, sound of music produced by a small community theater here in Randolph. And I went down and uh, auditioned and it was a uh, um, terrifying audition. And I sang climb every mountain, <laughs> not even with the thought that I could be, you know, um, the mother superior, but I had to sing something. And um, I remember going and uh, practicing how to sing with the accompanist. Um, you know, and I had a friend of mine who played piano uh, play for me so that I could learn how, you know, where's my entrance? How do I start this song? And I, I had no idea because I only sung unaccompanied. So uh, it was a learning curve, but but I went and I auditioned and they called me a few days later and said, well, you were one of the first ones that we nailed down. Uh, you're going to be the mother superior. And I said, oh, wait a minute. That, that has a lot of like, that has a lot of words, doesn't it? I mean, that's got a lot of dialogue. And they said, oh, no, not a lot. Don't worry. It's only, it's only a couple of pages, really. It's <laughs> spread out across the play, right? So I, oh, okay, okay. I said, well, I mean, I, I get my uh, script at the first uh, rehearsal and I'm horrified to see how many words I have to memorize, but um, I would memorize them in the car. I made practice tapes of myself saying the lines of the people that I was saying the lines against kind of in a smaller voice and then saying my lines kind of like loudly. And, and I would just play the tapes in the car as I drove my daughter to school and drove around town and and I would just study the part and um, I was prepared by the time it happened, but I really loved putting on the costume of the mother superior. It was so much fun. And um, having my whole family there in the front row when I performed was just, uh, it was such a thrill. It really was. Having my grandmother there was such a thrill. It was oh, beautiful. absolutely beautiful. It was great. We love to ask people about systems or tools that they use to make their work or their lives easier. So I'm curious, when you were using the tapes to remember your lines for the show, do you 
tape yourself singing the songs that you're going to learn for gigs or uh, is that a tool you still use or what is a tool that you use now? Yeah, that absolutely is uh, how I learn. I don't read music. And um, so I learn everything by ear. And what I have to do when I see the words of a song, and this is the same whether it's music hall or ballads or, you know, any songs, either I'm going to hear the song and say, I want to learn that one, or I'm going to be looking through pages and pages and pages of lyrics. And I will find lyrics that I think, oh my gosh, I think I could bring that one across. I really like this song. And I have to really like the song to want to learn it. And, um, but I'll read the lyrics and then I'll say, okay, now I'll find the song. And I go to YouTube and I look it up and I find a copy of it and I listen to it and say, yep, yep, I love this. And then I tell Jean about it. And then Jean looks up the um, sheet music and then we figure out the key and then I try it out. And then once we are able to, you know, she's able to play the melody and I'm able to sing a little bit of it. I record that much of it and then just keep going. And I'll sometimes only record the first half of the song and then just sing the rest of the song myself. And that kind of sets it in my head. Um, I have lots of tips okay. for memorizing songs. Uh, you know, it's, it's a good thing when you're trying to memorize lyrics to be doing something physical. So here's one of my tips. Um, pace, pace in your house, pace in your yard, and just saying the words to yourself in the same meter in which you will be singing them really helps. So for instance, you know, uh, I'm awfully partial to music. So I bought a piano one day. And I mean, just saying it like that in time makes it so that it sticks in your head better because now when your brain goes to look for those words, it's remembering that cadence, it's remembering that rhythm and yeah. kind of filling in what's coming, right? There are some songs I can't memorize, but a lot of the songs that we have with the music hall tell a little story um, or have some kind of silly conclusion. And I'm, I'm not very good at the songs that are just like lists of a uh, hundred things I should be doing or something like, I don't know, uh -huh. lists. I don't do well with just <laughs> lists of, of words. I do much better with a, with a song that tells a story. And that's why I think what attracted me to ballads. That's really interesting because I do something really similar when I'm memorizing a Shakespeare speech. I will, and this is something else I got from Shakespeare and Company. I swear they're not paying me. It just keeps coming up. Um, <laughs> there is an exercise where when you are working on a Shakespeare speech, you walk through that you're in and you turn whenever you see a punctuation mark or whenever you reach the end of a line, if the thing is in verse. So it gets in your body that way. Yes, yes. It's breath in those spaces so that then when you're remembering the speech later or you're, or you're delivering it later, your body remembers what comes next when you take the breath. Right. And because I don't read music, a lot of times when a song is new to me, I'll develop muscle memory like that. But before I develop the muscle memory, I have to know, is this the part of the song where it goes up? Is this the part of the song where it goes down? That type mm -hmm. of thing. So I wind up putting little marks in the lyrics. So I just print out the lyrics and then I listen to the song and I mark it up with little up arrows indicating that's where that particular line goes up at the end. If it's new to me, that is the only way I can get through something. And I will put a slash between the words where I need to grab a breath 
and a small slash where I need to grab a small breath. But I, I will learn by just walking through the song like that where everything fits. So, yeah. I'm just over here taking notes because I am not uh, strong at memorizing lyrics at all. So I'm just, yeah, taking notes. Although the one time I really absolutely had to memorize lyrics, it was a whole skit that we were basically singing a performance to and so there were a lot of like hand motions and gestures and Mm -hmm. it was a story so there was a place it had to go so all of that's ringing quite true about just the physicality of helping remember things um and that that's useful I also feel like I could easily lean on that as a crutch a little too hard and then look ridiculous (laughs) in the situation where that doesn't work out but it's interesting well you know something I've noticed about um, learning lyrics, especially, you know, lyrics that, that for the most part don't add up to a story, right. But are just a lot of interesting things that are put together, uh, or maybe it's a very long ballad, right. But what sets it in my brain is writing it out in longhand. And, um, and uh, okay, well, I know this from working with kids with ADHD. This was one of the tips for helping memorize things was writing it out. Because when you write something, you are um, thinking of the word, it's gone into your brain so that you can write it. And then you write it and the process of writing it puts it into your muscle memory and then and back into your brain in a different way. And then you look at the word or you read the lyrics and you relate to how it went into your brain. And so it's, it sets it in your brain even better. And what's interesting about brains is that, you know, when you used to cram for a test and you might be able to go and boom, you can get a 95% on that test because you stayed up late and you crammed all that information into your brain. But if I test you on it next week, you'll get a 40% because you didn't memorize it and set it full in your head, in your deep part of your memory. It's just kind of like glossing over something and holding on to it long enough so that it, in your short-term memory, so it can be just be spit out for a test. And that's what I don't like about tests because anybody can do that, right? But putting it into your deep memory, it takes some doing. And one of the things that helps with that is time. And so mm-hmm. learning, learning a song and then putting it away for a month and then trying to sing the song rough again even if you can only get 80 percent of the song or 70 percent of the song when you do it again that really sets it in concrete in your head that 70 percent the fact that you were able to recall it has really set it in place with you again and i think we've all experienced this with songs that we've revisited you know songs from our high school days or college choral groups or something and once in a while singing one of those songs brings it back, refreshes the memory. And that's the challenge of having a big repertoire is that you know a lot of songs, but um, do you really know a lot of songs or do you think you know a lot of songs? <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, so on nights that I'd be at um, the tavern and maybe there'd be a little snow going on uh, out in the parking lot and people wouldn't come out, but I'm still there and they're still paying me and they still want me to entertain the 10 people who came. And they're all the regulars. I mean, it's like uh, it's like the Cheers bar, right? It's the, the same people. <laughs> and um, I would joke with them, okay, well, because there's only a few of you here tonight, 
we're going to have a lot of fun tonight because I'm going to play a game I call Dust Off Night. And I would look at my list with an eye to let me not sing something that I know I've sung in the past six months. And I would look at my list and say, oh, here's one I know I haven't sung in a year at least. And I would sing it and get through it as best I could. But that was part of the game was trying to recall. And sometimes I would stop in the middle of the song and they'd all start snickering. And, I, it, and it was like, it was, a, it was a fun game to play because they recognized it was a game. And I was really lucky to have a place like that where I could do that uh, and get paid. <laughs> but, uh, but it was entertainment, wasn't it? It doesn't have to be perfect to be entertaining. That's, mm -hmm. that's such an important thing. I mean, I just saw something, I think, in Facebook the other day, and I, and I shared it on my Facebook because it was, it was that message. You know what? It doesn't have to be perfect to be something. And uh, that's so know, important. That's you don't so... have to be a master of what you're doing to get something out of it and to enjoy it and to have it be part of your life. And that is, that's critical for people to know that. I think that so many times we're told we have to be good. We have to be an expert. We have to be, well, creative work isn't like that. It's fulfilling in different ways. I mean, I have a lot of interests and um, my creativity it goes into everything that I do. It's yeah. just, it's so part of me. There's a whole bunch of stuff as a singer and a whole bunch of stuff as a manager of a musical group that you have to do. And some of it is stuff that people would expect. Like you have to book the gigs, you have to rehearse the songs. So what's something on that list that people wouldn't think would be on that list? When I was younger, um, I thought that being a performer meant that I would just show up and sing and people would pay me. And it had kind of like that glamour to it, right? But what it really is, is there's a lot of work behind the scenes that there's a lot of research behind our songs. And so people come and see the old Howard troupe perform and they think, oh, they're so cute. Oh, that's really fun that they wear these cool costumes. And, but you have to know that the reality is that we've done the research so that we know that we are presenting songs that are of the period that we are representing. And also the self-promotion. I mean, that's something you have to learn to do is to understand about how important it is to be able to talk about yourself and about your troupe and about what you do and how good you are at it, right? Because you have to have the drive to want to succeed at doing that. But there's a lot of um, marketing content that I create. I mean, I do all of our image work and all of our messaging comes from me because I want to make sure that we are always saying the same thing and that we have, you know, taglines like follow us to the music hall and things like that. And we want to make sure that that is expressed the same way every time and comes across and, and that it is attractive to our audience. So a lot of times on Facebook, you know, we'll, we'll be having a long period of silence. Um, and then, you know, I will just post a beautiful Victorian uh, interior of some, you know, museum or something and say, have no fear. You know, we're still here behind the curtain uh, in the green room and enjoying each other's company and learning new material so that when we see you again, we'll have some new songs. And just kind of just maintaining that connection with um, 
you know, with our audience, even though we're not on stage all the time. It's important. Did you learn about the importance of self-promotion and having your marketing materials and having your messaging on point and just doing the work? Did you learn that through all of your musical endeavors or did you learn it elsewhere in your life? Well, that's interesting. That, that's an interesting question because I think that probably the first time that I participated in something that I had to think about you know, what were we doing and what did we want the outcome to be and how could we express how we were talking about it so that people would want to come it was when I was a Girl Scout. <laughs> I oh, mean, yeah, Girl Scouts. I was a Girl Scout. They're the best. Too, Continue. Just, just saying, right? I think that that was the first time that I realized that you couldn't just have an event and it didn't happen automatically. And it wasn't, there was a lot of planning and a lot of, there was a process and I started learning what is the process. And by the time I went to college, I knew about a lot of this process. And part of it was watching my mother too. She was very active in the community. She didn't work. She was a stay at home mother and, you know, raised four kids, but she was active in the community. She was active in the PTO and she was, she was a Girl Scout leader. She was my Girl Scout leader for many years, you know. But what I really uh, watched was her whole process of getting ready for a meeting of the Southwest Civic Association. No kidding. She, you know, she was one of the founders of this uh, local uh, civics association in Braintree. Um, and they would have regular meetings and um, make their decisions about what they wanted to say to the town about that part of Braintree. And then representatives would go to meetings and represent the neighborhood. But it was all very, you know, neighborhood driven. And I watched what she did and I learned from her what was the best way to approach something like that. And I mean, you know, there were like goofy things that I did along the way. You know, when I was a teenager, I ran quite a few yard sales because I was doing a yard sale in the front of my house. But we had a lawn that was like um, an acre long. It was just a huge lawn. And um, it was a beast to mow, but um, <laughs> I got that job once in a while. But I said to my mother, why don't we invite other people in the neighborhood to have a table on the same day that we do our yard sale and like sell them the table for $10. And okay. then, then they can bring their stuff to sell, but we'll do all the promotion and we'll buy an ad and put it in the paper. And she agreed it was a great idea. And, um, and we would have that and I might sell, you know, $10 worth of stuff off my table, but I would collect $120 from the other people from the neighborhood. <laughs> so it was a very good day for me. You know? <laughs> but I think I learned all along the way, but in every organization I've ever been in, that has been, how are we going to pitch this idea to an appropriate audience? How are we going to get our audience? How are we going to drive people into you know, this? How are we going to get people interested in what we're doing? And all of that, um, all of that marketing uh, knowledge now has helped me in my own small business that I'm doing. Um, and, and it's kind of ingrained in me now, you know, it's just, it's how I think. Yeah. Even though this podcast is not about the kind of small business that you have started, I do just want to give you a minute to tell us about what that is and just, um, yeah, talk a little bit about what you've been working on these last few months. And if you could connect it back to um, all of your singing and such, as you sort of just did. Oh but yeah, goodness. tie it all in and tell us what you're doing. 
Oh my goodness. Well, um, I'll tell you, I was, uh, I was a corporate employee for 37 years. Um, the last job that I had, I was there for 31 years. I worked for Dunkin' Donuts corporate headquarters. And um, when I left there, I thought, well, okay, that was fun, but what do I want to be when I grow up? And I started looking for more, I was trying to find that creative job because I knew creativity was such a big part of me. And I wanted a job that I thought was going to be in the arts and culture scene. And what I really wound up doing was recognizing that all of the work that I do um, in all of the different organizations I've ever been in has always been administrative work and marketing work and that type of thing, marketing, promotion, administration. And I thought, that's what I enjoy doing. I do it in, the, in my free time. I should do it for a job and get paid. So I became um, a virtual assistant. So now I have um, a little business that I'm running from home. And I have clients now, I can say, from across the country who um, rely on me to get their message together, to put their promotional materials together, to make designs of um, social media, to help them with their promotional um, materials, to figure out what their message is. I do a lot of writing, a lot of creative writing um, to write their blogs for them. I mean, I recently had someone, you know, give me the assignment of write a 1500 word blog about Mother's Day gifts, great mothers, 10 best Mother's Day gifts. And of course, the last one had to be a, phot uh, a family photograph because she's a photographer. But it was, I mean, every day now I look forward to getting up and getting to my little desk and looking at my email, looking at my LinkedIn, looking at my Facebook and, and seeing what has come in overnight um, and who can I talk to today about what I'm doing. So it's, it's very creative because I am learning so much every day. And now I have the confidence after a few months that if somebody says to me, oh, do you have, um, do you have XYZ? And I say, oh, I've um, heard of it. I don't know much about it, but I will learn. And that's the thing. The creative brain allows you to know that you can learn anything. Mm. And that's the thing that I love about my creative life is that I can learn any new song. I can learn to put on a costume and do, you know, that gig. I can learn to talk about myself and be proud of my accomplishments, but not, I don't think sound, you know, um, you know, like I'm tooting my own horn, but it's, it's, it's just, uh, you know, I can learn to do the research that goes behind all of what I am presenting with the old Howard troop. I can, you know, and it's, so it's just, as easy to switch horses and say, yeah, I can learn to use Canva. I can learn to use Calendly. I can use all of these tools. They're all very creative. That's a fantastic job of tying it all back in. Thank, Thank you, you for that. That was great. <laughs> that was way better than I thought it would be. But what is the name of your business in case someone is like, in fact, this lady is awesome and obviously has her stuff together. How would I find her? How well, would I hire her as my virtual assistant? Okay. So you can, you can find me just by looking up Lynn Feingold virtual assistant on um, LinkedIn. Um, and that's where you'll learn a lot about me and uh, you can find all my contact information there and even set up a, a 30 minute free consultation. But also I have just a really simple one page uh, website that is virtualassistantboston.com. Well, oh, great. 
And where do people go if they want to hire you to sing for them or with them? Well, or um, to talk to the old Howard troop about doing that. You can actually just contact me. Uh, I do have a website and uh, it's still under the name of my persona at the tavern, songsofthecolonialdays.com. So you can go to songsofthecolonialdays.com and still find me. I think if you just type in Lynn Feingold Singer, you will also find me, uh, find that website. Either way, you can reach me through any number of means. Uh, just uh, just Google me, you'll find me out there. <laughs> or look at the show notes. We'll totally include links to your things at the bottom of this episode's show notes, uh, or maybe at the top at makinglifepodcast.com. Um, so yeah, we'll put it there too for you. Great, thank you. We're running a little low on time. We do have a favorite question we want to ask you. We would love to hear what is one of your favorite things about making music such a significant part of your life? What I love about it is the way that it makes me feel. It makes me feel alive to be able to sing and to have the joy of sharing a good song with a friend or with family. And I share it with so many good people. And I'll tell you, when I first when I first met my folk family, it was like finding family when I met them, because we all shared a lot of similar songs or a lot of the same songs. And I love that. I just love that. Do you think that goes back to singing with your biological family as a kid? Probably, you know. But also, I mean, what's interesting about folk music people is that they they all kind of a lot of them think alike. And <laughs> you can say something and know that, um, that you're with family when you say it. And they share a lot of the same um, ideas about music and how much it should be shared and enjoyed. And a lot of people, as you said earlier in this podcast, a lot of people have had the conversation when I've been with them about the importance of sharing this music and making sure that we're the bridge to the next generation and to the generation after that and to the generation after that. So by sharing the music and keeping the music going and keeping it alive and keeping it thriving um, through performance and you know workshops and projects and grants and all of that, it's all tied together in a nice little bundle, isn't it, right? So my work with, with the old Howard Troop uh, and my work with the Folk Song Society of Greater Boston and my own interests and, you know, the ballad singing competition, it's all tied together with that goal of let's keep it going. Let's keep it thriving. Fantastic. I think that is a wonderful place to end our episode. Thank you so much for having been our guest. Especially because I might cry. Oh. <laughs> okay, yes. Good ending time. Good time for my everything. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for having me on your podcast. I really enjoyed our discussion. And it's funny because these are things that you don't really think about very much as you're so busy day to day. And, you know, um, and especially lately, I've been very busy. And it's just nice to take a pause and reflect and think about some of these things. Um, so thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for being here.
Making Life podcast is produced by your hosts, Heather Kant Knowlton and Kate Clifford, with music from November Party. Find us at www.makinglifepodcast.com.